You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Give this deal a second look. No, it is not perfect and yes, it is a compromise. But when the history books are written, people will look at the decision. The United Kingdom braces itself for the imminent latest failure of its politicians to work out what Brexit actually means. My guests Stephen DL and Peter Goodman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the degree to which we should be worried by Germany not being quite as productive as usual, China's increasingly weird baiting of Canada, and why one American college football team might be wishing they'd worked less hard this season. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Stephen D.L., the broadcaster and Russia analyst, and Peter Goodman, global economic correspondent with The New York Times. Welcome both. And at the risk of driving listeners to run away to sea, we will start with Brexit. Here in London, at some point in the next few hours, Prime Minister Theresa May will put the deal she has struck for leaving the European Union to the House of Commons. If pundits are to be believed and all unless she knows of a quick means of bunging round another few dozen knighthoods, she will lose. After which, literally nobody knows what will happen, least of all the people allegedly in charge of the process. A reminder that, by force of law, as things stand, the UK will crash out of the EU without a deal in 73 days. Um, Stephen, first of all, let's uh, deal and or dispense with the probably most absurd and unlikely outcome here. Is there any chance at all she somehow wins this thing? If I were a gambling man, which I'm not, I would not put money on her <laughs> winning. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's uh, there's been so many people. She postponed this vote before Christmas because she realised that it was just going to be shot to bits and, and would never get through. Um, I don't know what she was looking for. Maybe she was hoping people would go away and be in such a good mood as the new year came, Christmas, they'd enjoy it with their families, they'd gone away and then new year and then maybe somehow she hoped that people would think again. But all the noises that have come out, apart from one or two people who said, oh, well, actually, I'm going to back Theresa May. Um, but um, I think it was indicative that the House of Lords voted last night um, and, OK, they don't have the, uh, by any means, the final say and it's somewhat symbolic. But their vote was uh, 300 and something to 152. It was, there was more than twice uh, the number voted against as voted for. So if that's anything of an indicator, then uh, I don't think she's got a great deal of chance of getting this through. Uh, Peter, this must be such good fun uh, for an American to watch. Confirmation as if it were needed that the, the revolution was probably a good idea. Um, do, do you have the least idea what happens next? Suppose she loses this thing, and supposing she loses it, as most people predict, right. uh, quite handsomely... Um, what actually does happen? And that's not a rhetorical question. No well, one really knows. The, uh, with the caveat that no one really knows. That's, <laughs> that's correct. Uh, including the participants themselves. There's a lot of winging it. I think it's, you know, it's useful to remember that for the last two and a half years, Theresa May has been elaborately kicking a can down a very long road while perpetually looking for more road. And this is the moment where the road finally seems to run out. I mean, she has been uh, trying to placate the hardcore Brexiters 
who really do want to get rid of the European Union, while also placating the people who pay attention to, you know, everyday things like economics, who understand that there's no form of Brexit that makes Britain richer. And in fact, every conceivable form of Brexit makes uh, Britain poorer to some degree or another. So she's tried to act like, yes, we're really doing this. We're really leaving while doing as little as possible. That's resulted in this deal that has a little uh, to hate for everyone. And uh, now she's going to have to pick in some fashion. I, I mean, assuming she survives, which is not clear, uh, if she loses by a big enough margin, it's conceivable that she'll see her cabinet abandon her. We know that the Labor Party is going to deliver uh, a motion of no confidence in the uh, government. That will probably fail unless the the DUP uh, members of parliament who've been propping up her government bolt, which seems unlikely. So at that point, she'll either have to say, OK, uh, given the choice between a no-deal Brexit or an even softer Brexit, I'm prepared to just go over the cliff and entertain that havoc. Or she could uh, turn uh, toward the center, as it were, and try to come up with a softer form of Brexit and maybe peel off some labor support. Uh, Stephen, there are those observers, and they may be people who've just been driven insane by observing this process, who do claim to perceive some strategic logic uh, behind what Theresa May is still doing at this point. The idea that she's engaged in a game of chicken with the EU, that she's she's taking this as far as she can, hoping that they will blink and offer better terms. Is there anything possibly to that, do you think? Because the thing that does get forgotten, I think, you know, quite reasonably, as Britain becomes uh, obsessed with the effect that it will have on Britain, is that it's not going to be good for the EU, some countries in particular, most obviously France and the Republic of Ireland. It's not going to be good for them, but I, I can't see that she's being that cunning. Um, I've almost got to a situation where I felt rather sorry for her, actually, because it was her predecessor who got us in this mess in the first place. Uh, by holding this referendum and making it 50 uh, 50% plus 1 uh, absolute you know this is what we'll do it could have been it could have been advisory there are all sorts of ways they could have done it simply cuz david cameron remember him he was um, probably the worst prime minister we've ever had uh, he was the one who said that he 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 basically he didn't say this but it was clearly he just wanted to sort out the problems in his own party in the conservative party there's always been those who who hate europe and those who actually are a bit more broad minded uh, who live in the 21st century as opposed to the 19th where where Jacob Rees-Mogg lives. Uh, and, as late um, as the 19th. Well, I'm being kind to him. Um, <laughs> and, and so the, the, Theresa May has inherited this problem. Um, uh, I, I very much like Peter's analogy. Yes, she's been kicking it down the road. And, and you know, there is a T-junction up ahead on the, uh, the 29th of March. She's got to go one way or another. One thing which I thought interesting, though, yesterday on Monday, she said um, that... Uh, no Brexit looks more likely than a no-deal Brexit. Now, whether that's just trying to jerry people up and make them think, oh, hang on, well, we better support something because otherwise we might not leave for those who want to leave. Um, my own, I mean, this is very difficult not to be subjective about this, so I'm going to put my own cards on the table. And what I'm hoping is that despite the fact she's denied this all along, she will actually turn around and say, actually, perhaps we should have another vote and, and put it to the people again. Well, that that right there is is nearly an answer to the next question I was going to ask. So I was going to ask each of you in turn, and I'm doing this to all our regular guests on Midori House just because I enjoy offering you all the, the opportunity to embarrass yourselves. Um, on March 29th, which is the day on which, as things now stand, the UK will one way or the other leave the EU, uh, Peter, I will ask you first, what do you think is actually going to happen or, or have happened by then? On March 29th, where are we going to be? 
Well, I'm going to somewhat weasel out of that question. I will answer it in a moment. Smart move. Um, you know, let's understand that for two and a half years, this political system has been entirely dysfunctional, has been incapable of agreeing on just about uh, anything. And unless they agree on something, unless there's a majority of votes in the parliament, then the default is Britain crashes out of the European Union. So you can certainly... Uh, paint. You can certainly tell a story that says that is increasingly likely. However, um, I'm with Stephen in that I think that, you know, Theresa May is now playing this elaborate game. It's not so elaborate. It's a pretty transparent game. She's trying to scare us into believing that, you know, it's a binary choice between this deal that everyone hates or crashing out in the hopes that the closer we get to the cliff, the more people will be likely to take refuge in this deal that no one likes. Uh, but of, of course, it's entirely possible that if she herself believes that we could really go over the cliff, she'll say, you know, I don't really want my legacy to be the prime minister who said Brexit means Brexit, and we still don't really know what Brexit is, uh, and, and have the legacy be, I uh, couldn't deliver a deal, and we crashed out. Moreover, a crash out deal, or crash out plus plus, as I like to call it, uh, <laughs> would amount to a victory for the people in her party, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who tried to essentially politically assassinate her unsuccessfully with the motion of no confidence. So if she ultimately has to choose between uh, going over the cliff or reluctantly assenting to some kind of second referendum scenario, I, I would say, uh, with an awful lot of reluctance to be pinned down, that that's what she'll do. So to answer your question, I think by March the 29th, there will be some kind of extension. Uh, and that extension will only be granted by the Europeans if there's a credible path to a second referendum. And I think that's where we'll be headed. And Stephen, just quickly. I'm afraid I'm going to agree. <laughs> I, I, I think that's I, I really do think that's where it's going to be because I can't see this vote being passed tonight um, the, the idea of, of no deal at all and just crashing out is, is absurd all round um, the, the analogy also which I think is very very, very appropriate all along is you know, this is a divorce uh, and the other side of the, the, the party in this divorce i.e. the European Union doesn't want us to leave so any signal that Britain gives that actually we might change our minds they will be sympathetic and they will be prepared to wait a bit longer for a, a, a decision on that OK well let's move along now and take a look at Germany for a few decades now and for the last few years in particular Germany has operated as Europe's reassurer in chief the one country that can be depended on not to part company with its senses stage an economic meltdown and or so forth. Its latest economic data, it should be acknowledged, is very far from reason to panic, but a growth rate of 1.5%, the slowest rate Germany has recorded for five or six years, is disagreeable news to a world wary of the prospect of a more general downturn. Um, Peter, first of all, 1.5% is it's still more than my current account is paying me. Is it, is it, is it really so bad? Uh, it's not good, and it, it's certainly a slowdown. And, and I mean, should I change banks now that I think I, of it out loud? I cannot advise <laughs> you on your banking situation, especially if you're in sterling, uh, which is a currency that seems poised to fall some more. Uh, I mean, in, in all seriousness, this is an indication of slowdown in the global economy. I mean, Germany is a major exporter. Germany is suffering uh, in part because of some domestic stuff involving car sales, but largely fears about China slowdown, which is cooling investment fears about uh, the effect of the tariffs in Donald Trump's uh, global trade war. And, and so it's not that 1.5% growth is a screaming emergency, but it is very much an indicator uh, that, uh, that 
enhances the sense that the global economy is slowing. And let's face it, if this is as good as this global economic expansion is going to get before the inevitable pause or, or even downturn, this is a, a moment where, you know, though places like uh, countries like Spain and Greece are in a lot better shape than they were during the crisis, we've still got elevated unemployment. We've got populists on the march exploiting economic inequality. There's a lot of unhappiness out there in the world. I'm sure that's not news to anyone. And a slowing global economy is not going to increase the stock of happiness. Uh, Stephen, Peter there mentions uh, Spain and Greece. Is the real question possibly, therefore, if this is what's happening in Germany, uh, what's happening everywhere else? I think it is. Now, Peter is the economist, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a comment which is actually really a secretly disguised question towards Peter because he's the <laughs> economist. Please go um, right ahead. So I'm not a practicing <laughs> economist, let the record show. <laughs> Um, that's actually quite reassuring in the circumstances. Because <laughs> it, it strikes me, because uh, I tend to look at political matters rather more closely, and, of course, we've been through an amazing three decades, I suppose we could say, if it's now three years this year since... Uh, 30 years, sorry, this year, since the Berlin Wall came down, the end of the Cold War, that, that which was, a, of course, famously or infamously, infamously described as the end of history. Um, and, in fact, that political period of liberalism and, and everything looking wonderful and, and everyone being friends uh, didn't last very long. Um, and one of the things that came out of the fallout from that, of course, was the economic crisis of 2008. And everyone was looking back through the history books and saying, oh, you know, this is like the 1930s. This is terrible. It hasn't happened since then. And, and um, you know, we'll learn the lessons of it. But are we, in fact heading for that sort of thing again. I mean, this, you know, this figure in, in Germany, as you say, this is the strong country, you know, and the, the Spains and the Greeces and, and, and other countries in Europe and indeed other parts of the world are going to look at this and say, well, if they're in trouble, uh, what are we doing? Um, you know, is, is it as, am I being a doom monger, but or, or is it as serious as that, that we could, 2019 could be another 2008? I, I mean, free market capitalism and liberal economics are uh, not exactly looking like the hot model for countries uh, looking for something to emulate right now. And while it's unclear which way things go, uh, it is very clear that large numbers of people in many countries, certainly the United States, which elected Donald Trump, uh, Britain, which opted for Brexit, Germany, uh, where the far-right AFD party is on the rise, uh, and further afield than that, Brazil, the Philippines. I mean, there's a general sense that the people who've been running the world for the last half century plus haven't done a very good job making sure that the, the spoils of economic growth get distributed such that most people are benefiting. And in fact, in, especially in places like the United States and Britain, wages have been so weak for so long that large numbers of working people have seen their wages fall in real terms over, over decades when you factor in inflation. And certainly, you know, let's not make too much of one uh, rough patch in Germany, but certainly the notion that the global economy, which never fully got its juice back after the worst uh, financial crisis since the Great Depression, if this is as good as it gets, you're going to have more people presumably say, well, where's mine? I never recovered. Uh, and and that, that can go all sorts of places. And, and some of them uh, tend toward uh, extremist solutions that involve demonizing immigrants you know, blaming all sorts of external forces uh, for, for problems. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Miller, along with Stephen Diel and Peter Goodman. Coming up next, the latest escalation in China's weird diplomatic spat with Canada and the President of the United States poses with several hundred cold cheeseburgers. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle. Visit monocle.com. 
Listen live to our radio station, Monocle 24, or explore more than 5,000 hours of audio. Every minute of every show we've broadcast since we launched. And don't forget that we have over 400 films to watch and share, while magazine subscribers can log in and browse our complete print archive on screen. Our online shop is here too, which you'll find well-stocked with clothing, books, travel accessories, fragrances, homewares, and more. Check into monocle.com every day for fresh news and opinion from our editors and bureau around the globe. Then plan a trip to one of those spots for business or pleasure with our handy city and resort guides. It's all there for you at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Stephen Diel and Peter Goodman. As recently as a few months ago, you could probably have got decent odds on a diplomatic row between China and Canada becoming a thing. That, however, was before Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Vancouver Airport at the request of the United States on December 1st. Subsequent to that, Chinese police have arrested two Canadian citizens in China on extremely nebulous security charges, and China now appears to have upped the state considerably. A Canadian national who was sentenced in November to 15 years prison in China for drug smuggling has now had his sentence increased, if that's the word, to death. Um, Stephen, is there any chance at all that this is entirely coincidental? I would say not. Um, I just, it's staggering. I think one, one of the, one of the clues to um, the, 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 the fact that it's not coincidental is that um, uh, this uh, Robert Schellenberg was uh, the, the, the chap who's the drug the, trafficker. The, the, the alleged drug, drug trafficker who's um, now been sentenced to death. Um, he was arrested in 2014. He then waited something like 15 months before any trial at all. Then the trial which ended up with a 15-year uh, sentence, lasted for about 35 months. You know, this has all gone on a very long time and suddenly in one day They've turned around and said, no, actually, that was wrong. And, and his appeal was rejected and he was given the death sentence. And it comes just, you know, a matter of a um, few weeks after the arrest of this, um, this, this executive, the Chinese executive. So uh, it, it's, it, to me, it looks like an outrageous example of a big country trying to bully a little country and using a human being as a pawn. Uh, Peter, is it clear to you where China is going with this? Because it, it, it's not clear to me, because obviously what they want ultimately is for Meng Wanzhou to be released and to be allowed to travel back home. But is it not the case that every time they ratchet up the pressure on Canada like that, it makes it less possible for Canada to do that, even if Canada actually wanted to, because then it would look like they were acquiescing to being bullied. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know who the intended audience is. I mean, certainly... There is uh, part of, of the audience uh, being comprised of, you know, those of us outside of China who are supposed to understand that we should respect the Chinese Communist Party, uh, respect the sovereignty of, of the Chinese government. But, you know, as in all uh, major spectacles in China, there's a dimension of playing to the domestic audience. Uh, and, I mean, there's been, I, I think, both organically and through the propaganda channels, a lot of interest in this case of this Huawei executive being arrested in in, in uh, Canada. And re let's remember, at the behest of the United States, uh, now locked in a, a very uh, substantial trade war with, with Donald Trump. Uh, and so, you know, stirring up nationalist passions, demonstrating that China is a strong country in the world and must be reckoned with, this plays well 
uh, with a public at home that's now dealing with uh, an economic slowdown. And, and for the Chinese Communist Party, their ability to maintain public support really rests on improving living standards, and that's now at risk, uh, and uh, whipping up nationalist fervor, which this accomplishes. Um, what options, Stephen, do you think Justin Trudeau is actually left with here? Because it, it does place, in, place him, as I'm sure China has understood, an extremely weird bind. On, on, on the one hand, um, he probably wants this problem to go away as much as everybody else, and, he, and he's probably quite reasonably concerned uh, for the, the, the fate of the, well, the three so far Canadian citizens thus far enmeshed and the more who could become. But he can't be seen to back down, can he? He can't be seen to back down. Um, he can be seen to make, be making uh, humanitarian appeals. Um, he will, I'm sure, have in the back of his mind that, or indeed in the front of his mind, the fact that two Canadians, between, the, between 2012 and 2016, two Canadians were put to death in China for drug offences. Um, Chinese do see this, take this case very seriously, these cases, drug cases. They're not, um, in fairness, not the only country in Southeast Asia to maintain that fairly hardline attitude. No, that's, that's true. But, um, uh, you know, this is where Mr. Schellenberg is, is being held. Um, so it's uh, it just, it, 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 what, what I think it just demonstrates is, is also coming back to something we were saying earlier about um, you know, the, 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 the rise of extremism. This is extreme behaviour by a government. It's an extreme behaviour by a government that actually wants people to take more notice of it. China wants to be seen as much more of a player on the world stage, um, financially, econ economically, in terms of business, and politically too. Um, and I think it, what it shows the West, though, is that it does have a, uh, a, a nasty streak to it. Um, what Trudeau can do about it, I think, is, is simply appeal and keep dialogue going, because if dialogue stops, then Mr Schellenberg's in real trouble. Uh, Peter, there has been a bit of a, a, well, I'm not sure if you'd call it retaliation from Canada, but it's movement. Uh, it, it has upgraded its travel advice to China. Uh, it's asking Canadian citizens in China to, quote, exercise a high degree of caution due to the risk of arbitrary enforcement of local laws, right. uh, end quote. Uh, are we getting anywhere near the point, or are we indeed at the point at which you wouldn't go to China if you were Canadian? Oh, I, I, I think we are in a new place. Well, I, I just want to back up for a second because, you know, Canada is in an especially tough spot. I mean, if, if Trudeau must be furious about this. I mean, Trudeau is served uh, an arrest warrant by the United States, ostensibly a country where the rule of law still applies. They arrest this executive, and now we're supposed to be talking about extradition. And in the midst of this, the president of the United States says, well, maybe we could swap her as a bargaining chip in the trade war with China, which is not consistent with this being rule of law. And now here we are questioning whether uh, this uh, death sentence for this alleged drug trafficker uh, constitutes a legitimate verdict or not. Now, in terms of this question of, of the safety of China, you know, China right now is holding two American citizens. These are Chinese Americans uh, whose dad uh, stands accused of, uh, of stealing almost a, a, a billion dollars from one of China's largest banks. And uh, these young people who grew up in the United States traveled to China, my colleagues recently reported, to go visit relatives, hadn't been back to China since they left as children. One of them was actually born in the U.S. And they can't get uh, an exit uh, permit. They're essentially trapped inside of China. So certainly, you know, the Canadian situation, that situation, yeah, 
there's pitfalls. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, condolences to Clemson University's football team who've had the edge taken off their astonishing 44-16 spanking of Alabama in last week's college football championship game by being compelled to consume cold cheeseburgers with Donald Trump. In a bid to make some sort of point about his ongoing shutdown of the federal government or something, the president fed Clemson on the cuisine of Wendy's, Burger King and McDonald's when the Tigers made their celebratory visit to the White House. Trump claimed to have paid for the feast himself, but then Trump claims a lot of things. Uh, Peter, first of all, and I think most important to the discussion here, have Alabama been found out? <laughs> uh, I, You know, I'm not a college football fan. I, I, I was kind of I, hoping yeah, for you yeah. to kind of be able to leap upon that one Just with roll, the whole... How roll, about... tide, roll. That's all I can sum up. Well, that's... That that's, that's yeah. That, that'll do. That's a start. Um, it, the highlights were extraordinary. Didn't see the game live myself. It was on an inconvenient time for those of us who were in Australia at the time. Um, Stephen, th- even by Trump standards, the, these images are peculiar. Um, I think the single shot of him sort of lording it over uh, the, the feast has possibly supplanted him yelling at Lawnmower Boy in the, in the pantheon of strange Trump images. Is there any chance, do you think, that we see somewhere in this this ludicrous tableau a a glimpse of a slight self-aware, potentially even self-mocking sense of humour on Trump's part? Is there part of him that's just to say, you know what, screw it, I'm going to go full Trump? Definitely not. I mean, full to he is going full Trump in the sense of (laughs) I can do it all. I mean, I think the line that gives him away, I think, is, you know, and I paid for it all. I mean, I'm willing to bet money but, he didn't. But even if he, you know, whether, yeah, well, whether he did or not, I mean, any, but stressing that, you know, I, I, I give these guys. I mean, I'm not sure actually which, 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 um, which was the shorter straw that they got, um, getting a, you know, a, a feast of cold burgers or actually having to go and meet Trump. Um, they were both pretty, uh, you know, the sort of booby prizes in uh, in raffles, I would say. Um, but it does. I mean, the picture. I, I, in fact, I have it here in front of me. This picture of him. He almost looks like a priest, kind of blessing the, his table. It's it's, it's, it's the fact that there's a portrait of Abraham Lincoln overlooking it that I think that really makes it. Yeah, it's the fact that Abraham Lincoln has got his hand up to his, his, his forehead and he's yeah, looking. I, I, you, know, you can see Abraham Lincoln saying, oh, my God, what have I what have it, 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 here? It, it is the expression of a man wondering why he bothered. Um, Peter, who, who, the thing is, I think it's very easy for us to forget uh, is that there is still, uh, extraordinary though it is, a not insubstantial cohort of your fellow citizens uh, with whom this plays with. I mean... His disapproval ratings are past 50%, sure. but, it, but his approval ratings are not actually historically catastrophic. There are still not less than several tens of millions of Americans who would vote for him again. Amongst registered Republicans, there's somewhere between 85 and 95% of voters who would vote for him again. I mean, so, so in your experience, when, when those people look at what seems like an obviously ridiculous picture. Yeah. What are they thinking? Well, I was just out in western Michigan for a few days. That's the heart of Trump country, manufacturing country. I mean, they're seeing authenticity. They're seeing a politician who doesn't behave like a traditional politician. And there's deep cynicism in the United States about the political class. It's failed to, you know, all the buzzwords. That no one's shaking things up. No one's standing up for the little guy. I had a conversation in New York with an Arab American 
a 20-year-old who told me, I love Trump because he's shaking things up for the little people. But 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 the thing is, it, it's one thing to have believed that maybe while he was running for office, but now more than two years into this circus, there is literally no evidence whatsoever of him having any interest in the little guy or indeed shaking things up. Well, first of all, if you're white and your understanding of your interest is that there should be a privilege attached to being white, uh, he's done an awful lot, both symbolically and in reality. Uh, I was... I happen to be out in Michigan talking to factory owners who are dealing with the impact of tariffs, and a lot of them are being hurt. And every single one of them said, thank you, Donald Trump, at least for picking this fight. I hope you stick it out. We need to take on China. And when I asked them about things like the Mueller investigation and uh, allegations of collusion uh, with the Russians and undermining the American election, they all said, oh, that's just noise. I mean, it, there really is this split screen America where, you know, if you're on the side of the fence where you're a Trump supporter, then any information that suggests that he's doing something other than championing your interests is just designed to hurt him. So just as a final thought then, Stephen, is it possible that what we are looking at here is not a, a ludicrous portrait of decadence, but an extremely cunning bit of political signalling? No, I don't think it's even cunning. I think it's just Trump being his usual tacky self. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, he's caused this this crisis in the government. Um, he's, you know, that, that again, you know, he seems to ignore the fact that I think it's 800,000 people are not being paid at the moment because of what he's done, because he's, he's you know, he's behaving like a child and sort of stamping his foot and wants his money for the wall. Um, and, and this is his way of thumbing his nose at people or sticking up the middle finger and saying, well, there you are, look, I can still do it. I can still entertain people in the White House and I'm paying for it. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Stephen DL and Peter Goodman, thanks both for joining us on Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. There's music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200, including possibly even the result of that Brexit vote. Uh, Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 